most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Government and I'm here to help. And I'm here to help. We've got an awesome show for you today. In studio is Mr. Rob Joseph. Rob, how are you? I'm doing really good. He was a former police officer. He's a private eye now, but you've got one hell of a story. <laughs> I only know a little bit, and I got to tell you, my heart was pumping just hearing the little bit that I know. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? So you became an officer in what year? In 1986 in uh, Salt Lake City. Is this something you always wanted to do growing up? Uh, yes. Okay. I, I think uh, when I was when I was a young kid, I was uh, in the movies uh, watching uh, Serpico, and I, you know, many many of the listeners might not remember that. It's a movie about a New York City detective named Frank Serpico that uh, took on the New York City Police Department and corruption. And I I think I was about sixteen when it came out in the theaters, and I was watching it, and I was I was actually taken back by how much courage he had, number one, to step up and do what he did to try to expose it. But the other side of that was the opposition he got from everyone inside the police, the city. And ultimately what had happened was uh, they kind of set him up. He got shot in the head. Uh, but he did live, and um, I was kind of struck by the courage he had, the opposition that he faced, and then as a 16-year-old, I just kind of felt I'd like to make a difference. If I could be a cop or somebody in public service, and I came across a Frank Serpico, I'd be that guy that would you know, have his back and try to do whatever needed to be done to help him. In Australia, I'm originally from Australia, and in Australia, um, I joined the police force with my brother. At the time, I was married, and my uh, ex-wife said she didn't want to be married to a cop, so either, you know, get out of it or we get a divorce. So uh, I got out of it. My brother stayed in. 35 years later, he just retired from the Queensland Police Force. But anyway, after that, I came to the United States and uh, went to school. I went to Brigham Young University. Mm. And um, mostly my course of studies was uh, Middle Eastern studies, organizational psychology. And I realized I didn't really like that once I got out. And so... Uh, what I kind of work would you go into if that was... Uh, if you it finished was that. consulting. It was business consulting. So okay. we, back then, you know, we were working with uh, the company I worked for was working with like Anthony Robbins and Stephen Covey. And oh, wow. So, I mean, it was it was pretty interesting, but just not really fulfilling for me. And, and I kept pushing my dream to the back burner. I ended up leaving that and then ultimately making the decision that I would go into law enforcement. Okay. So you get in in 96 and then... How's everything going up till, because the thing happened in 99, right? Yes. Okay, so 96 to 99, is everything just normal? Everything's fine? I, I mean, I had officers, supervisors within the Salt Lake City Police Department. Uh, they would pull me aside and just say, stop arresting people, Rob. Go <laughs> drive your car to the corner of your patrol beat. Go to sleep. If we need you, we'll call. Are you serious? And I, I'm, it was pretty deflating. Um, right. And I, I would just look at them, and I knew it was because I was pretty proactive. You know, I, I, okay. took, I took the job pretty serious. I, you know, you have a patrol district beat, and, and the way you patrol it, you can kind of push the crime out. You can kind of find out what the problems are by meeting 
you know, with the residents and business owners. And so I was very proactive. I think every um, evaluation I had always, you know, I said that I was like the most productive officer in the department. And uh, but a lot of officers didn't like that Mm. uh, because then obviously they had to do more. And, you know, my attitude was always I'm here to do a job. I don't care what you guys do. Right. This is what I'm doing. And uh, I mean, I have one funny story I can tell you. Like one time I got pulled into a, to a room after lineup where you, you go out for the shift. You have a lineup and you discuss all the things that are happening. But one particular time I get pulled aside and, and just told to stop arresting people and go park my car and go to sleep. And so I left the station and didn't call out anywhere. And I decided I was going to go do what we call knock and talks where you just kind of go find stuff. So I, I went out to uh, like Sev- Second Avenue in Salt Lake City to a, a complex that I knew was pretty active for drugs. And I uh, got on the phone, called a bunch of my buddies. They all came down. I'm like, don't call out on the radio. Just kind of show up. So we started knocking doors. One thing led to another. Um, I think it was about an hour in. And I get on the radio. And I called dispatch. And, you know, I give them my call sign. At the time, it was Bravo 113. I said, hey, Bravo 113. Show me en route to jail with 12. What does that mean? 12 people I just arrested. Oh, jeez. All of a sudden, there's radio silence. Dispatch asks me to repeat it. And I said, you know, Bravo 113, show me en route to jail with 12. And I had had three, four buddies there. We'd loaded up all the police cars with people. And then we proceeded to the jail. At the time, there was a jail downtown where the library is, is the underground sally port for the county. And the, the sheriff's office had shut down the whole floor. They cleared it out. And all these deputies came out to handle the, the uh, arrested persons. And, uh, and there was a supervisor in there. And I got the riot act read to me. Uh, <laughs> I thought I told you to go park your car, go to sleep. And I, I looked at him. I said, you know, I was heading that way. One thing led to another. I saw this. I arrested one person. And now we've got 12. Gosh. And so they never told me to do that again. I can imagine. But at that point, I had, I had supervisors in there that kind of liked me um, mm-hmm. who would just come in and say, just watch your back, Rob. They're, they're out to, like, make an example of you, shut you down. Really? Yeah, I mean, there's there's officers get in law enforcement, and you're you're gun ho. I mean, there's there are a lot of good cops that go in there because they want to help people make a difference. But you get in there, and the administration just shuts you down. They don't want cops out there arresting. They don't want you driving their stats up for crime in the city. Oh. There's a, so many factors. Um, they don't want the liability. Um, and so I was told by a number of different supervisors that, you know, we'll, we'll beat it out of you. It usually takes about two to three years, and we'll kind of take that drive out of you, and then you just kind of fall back into line where you just do the bare minimum and try to get through your 20 years. Really? So what does that mean when they say they're going to beat you down? Do they mean literally or like they're just going to hit you with every rule that they have? Yeah, they'll, they'll just ride you, hit, hit you with every rule. Okay. Just, um, you know, critique every little aspect of what you do. And they, they just try to beat it down so that there are so many cops that I know that are still there from when I was there. And they just want to get through their time. Right. They are the ones that literally will go park their patrol cars and go Thank to God. sleep <laughs> and avoid administration at all costs. And it, it's not really serving the community. Like right now in Salt Lake City, 
there's a hundred less officers than there was 18 years ago, 20 years ago when I was there. Really? Servicing hundreds of thousands of more people. And the spirit in Salt Lake City uh, is pretty low. No motivation, no appreciation. In fact, uh, recently when we had the riots downtown, um, the whole of police administration was absent. Uh, literally, officers on the street, I had friends calling me, giving me blow by blow on, you know, trying to move protesters one way or the other way, and that they were calling their supervisors, and none of those supervisors were, were um, responding. None of them wanted to take responsibility for giving them any kind of direction in case it went south. Who's telling them not to? Is it the... the- top brass? Uh, It's coming right from the top. I I can give you one example that the police station was under siege and there was 10 officers inside in the foyer Mm -hmm. and they were, they literally did $200,000 worth of damage to the public safety building. They were trying to get in there. They wanted to burn it down. Holy crap. What I was told from my friends is that the administration or chief said, let it burn. Let it burn? Let it burn. Why? They just didn't want to deal with it. They just didn't want to deal with it. And then on the street, you know, as we know, we had a patrol car that was turned over and set on fire. Well, there was a female officer in there that had to be rescued. There was? There was someone inside that? Not when it rolled over, but the vehicle became under siege, and officers went in there with other vehicles and extracted her out of the vehicle, and then they rolled the vehicle over and set it on fire. Uh, there was three oh officers that were permanently injured uh, from different things. One got hit with a baseball bat. One got hit with a, with a manhole cover, a big metal one. Um, basically, those officers were ignored by the administration. They just totally threw them. They're castaways, you know. So then what happened, of course, was that the chief took a knee out in front of the police station with uh, the Black Lives Matter, Antifa, all the anti-cop protesters. And what that did was it totally broke the morale of the police and it triggered a mass exodus. So I think almost within weeks of that, about almost a quarter of the department had put in for transfers elsewhere. And they just all started leaving. I think there's still another 45 officers planning on going to the county. And so the numbers are just going way, way, way down. And um, Do you think it all, it's all stemming from that incident? It has, it has a lot to do with it, but yeah. generally just over the last few years, there's just been a lack of support. Uh, I know the city council comes out and they'll approve like 150 officers for the year, new officers to be recruited. And then the mayor will step in and go, yeah, we don't need those. And so they kind of kibosh it and put an end to it. And so now I know that they're so shorthanded. Um, you know, some nights you might have one officer patrolling like the west side with, you know, no backup anywhere close. Oh, jeez. Uh, Ten hours backlogged. Any of those officers will tell you that crime is way up. The violence is out of control. And yet... The way the, the way the administration or the mayor would try to portray Salt Lake City as being, you know, this quiet, calm place where there's really no crime. So it's, mm. it's pretty demoralizing, yeah. but, but that's just the environment of the politics. If you could take the politics out of policing uh, and have good police officers with some clear policies and procedures and directives uh, related to law enforcement, 
you would actually get a lot done without all the without all the drama. Have politics always been involved in policing, or has it gotten worse? Do you think now? Yeah, I, th- I think it goes through stages. Uh, when I was a police officer, uh, Mayor C- Didi Cordini was the mayor, and although she was corrupt uh, in ways, business ways, and she had a bunch of scandals going, we could talk about that in a little bit. But okay. um, I think she understood. Uh, the benefit of the policing. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was very uh, strong on downtown economic development. So she did a lot to bring people downtown. And, you know, with that comes responsibility of law enforcement and making it safe. So I, th- I think she had a pretty good balance on helping make it safe with law enforcement, treating law enforcement relatively well, uh, and trying to build the growth downtown. So, I, I mean, I didn't really have any problems with her. Um, I know I had a couple of incidents, I think, where I was doing my job and somebody said, oh, I'd talk to the mayor. And uh, the mayor says this and you're doing this. And, you know, my response was, well, the mayor doesn't make the laws. Yeah. And so what's happened in probably in the last 20 years is uh, city policing has become so political because the chiefs are appointed by the mayor, by the mayor and city council, mm-hmm. so they're they're more driven by policy and you know making it friendly. Like Salt Lake City is not technically a um, a refuge state, you know, for illegals or whatever, but they definitely don't enforce it. They don't work with the um, immigration services. Uh, so you have those things that now come into play. So whatever the whim of the mayor is, the chief will just fall in line and then give the directives. And although some of those might not uh, be constitutionally sound, officers will just follow what they're being told because, you know, they get beat down. (laughs) They get beaten to conformity and then you'll just do whatever they're telling you to do. Um, And and that's, that's a sad part of policing and that's the difference between, say, city policing and, and maybe the sheriff. So the sheriff's office is a, it's a political, it's voted in, elected okay. into office. So it, the sheriff's more responsible to the constituents that put him in office. And so they're not so driven by politics, although I'm sure it kind of gets a little in there, uh, but not as much as city policing. So what's the difference? The sheriff, are they county? Yeah, county. And then the police departments are... City. City, okay. Yeah. All right. So the mayor, does the mayor have any say over the sheriffs? No. So the mayor is only in charge of the department. Of, of the, the city of police the PD. department, yes. Okay. Those three years, do you notice that they're beating you down in, in those three years up until we get to 99? I noticed it. Um, I tried to be, you know, a little bit tempered, I guess. Um but, you know, for the most part, I had pretty good supervisors, immediate supervisors that would just kind of let me do my job. And, and I had, you know, a lot of officers that worked around me that, you know, were willing to get out. And, and um, we call them clusters, just go out and find stuff. And mm. one thing leads to another. And, and now you've got this mountain case. So, yeah, it's uh, I, I think I, I noticed that I had a target on my back. But the other side of it, too, was I was friends with probably three of the chiefs. Mm. How many chiefs are there? Well, there was uh, the main chief, and then there's three or four executive chiefs that fulfill different functions. And I was friends with them. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot politically going on 
at the time with Didi Cordini because I, I back in 90, I think it was like 97 or 98, the, she was involved in some financial scandals called the Bonneville uh, financial scandal. And uh, at the time, she was um, being investigated by the district attorney's office and there were deals made. I don't know who made the deals, mm-hmm. but there were deals made that uh, she would not be prosecuted if she would not seek re-election. Um. And then some weird stuff happened. You know, you just you kind of shake your head. But, you know, this is Salt Lake City, and it's a very different place. But um, I know that at the time the prosecutor was pushing for the prosecution, and then all of a sudden he's removed as a prosecutor, as the district attorney. Because he wanted to prosecute? Because you he wanted to prosecute her. So they ended up coming up with some scandal that kind of pushed him to the side. And then they got David Yoakum, who uh, basically brokered the deal that, hey, they're not going to prosecute you if, if you don't run for re-election. And then what was weird is John Huntsman, who was a general authority with the Mormon Church and has the head of the Cancer Institute... He's a big figure in Salt Lake. Big like figure a big in donor Salt Lake on everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah, he's, yeah. he's a billionaire. So okay, uh, yeah. he's got the money. And uh, he actually paid off all of the debts related to her scandal. What? Yeah, he, he I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars, but he actually came Whoa. in, paid off all the debts. So I know there was more involvement than just the general local level because right. you've got a mayor that is under investigation for corruption. And all of a sudden, that deal, that goes away. The district attorney's removed. A new district attorney brokers a deal where there's no prosecution if she doesn't run for office again. And then all of a sudden, you get a John Huntsman come in there and and financially bail her out to keep everybody happy. And so that was the general environment that was was taking place at that time. And um, I was kind of, because of my association with some of the chiefs, um, you know, I was on first name basis with them. They lived in my neighborhood. We did scouting with families. We spent evenings together. Um, I was pretty, I was pretty close to a couple of them. Uh, and we had talked, I had talked with them about the things that were happening in the city. And then, uh, of course, I was then asked if I would be the liaison with the mayor's office from the police department. So, so I, what does that entail? Well, that's me kind of being with her, the mayor. Okay, like her private her detail private kind of? cop, bodyguard, driver, and then I would kind of communications back and forth between the department and, and the mayor would be something that I was asked to do. I remember they I got called up and they asked me if I'd like to run, and everybody knows that I do, so I said, yeah. And says, well, you're going to be running with the mayor every day. Here's what the schedule looks like. You know, are you willing to do it? And, um, you know, I said, sure, I'd love to. Uh, but there are other things happening behind the scenes, too, with because um, we all know about the Olympic scandal. It was a huge bribery scandal that uh, landed the Olympics in Salt Lake City. What happened with that? Do you know much of that story? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty uh, familiar with it. Pretty familiar with it. Okay. So uh, basically, the International Olympic Committee was visiting Salt Lake City and and Mayor Didi Cordini was trying to broker the Olympics to come to Utah, the Winter Olympics for 2002. And um, so I guess what started to come out was some questions about improprieties, uh, bribery, 
those types of things. When you're getting these international dignitaries coming in for the Olympic Committee, it's like, what, what are you willing to do to kind of get them on side to choose Salt Lake City, say over, you know, Tokyo or some other place? And so what was happening at that time was the, the mayor was involved in that, and um, we'd, actually, we'd actually won the Olympics, and um, the scandal hadn't broken yet. Was her legal problems because of the Olympics? No, this is the Bonneville is thing was just something very separate to okay. that. Okay. So, but, you know, once, once a scandal comes up, yeah. they all start showing up. Yeah. So, so really what happened was, you know, we had, Salt Lake City had won the Olympics. Everybody was excited about it. Of course, you know, now the mayor wasn't going to be the mayor during the Olympics because she had, was not going to seek re-election. So, but she had done all the groundwork to get there. And a lot of people didn't really understand or know it, but, but in September of 98, there was an Olympic employee that went missing. Really? And uh, I think 11, 12 days later, he was found dead, stuffed in the back of an Olympic suburban and parked on a city street. What? Yeah, so a lot of people don't know about the story. Um, it's uh, James Christiansen is the guy's name. So this is, a, this is an Olympic employee uh, he's all excited about his job. I'm sure his family's all excited. He's, I think he goes to the fairgrounds. He's putting on some type of presentation there, promoting the, the Olympics. And then all of a sudden he goes missing. So, you know, 11, 12 days later, uh, he's, there's this vehicle, a suburban, Olympic suburban, parked on a city street downtown. And it's, it's there for three, four days. And nobody's writing parking tickets on it. Nobody's doing anything. And I guess uh, somebody walking by had kind of peered in there to see what the deal was. And, I mean, I think they saw this body in the back of the Suburban. Holy crap. And so they called the police, and the police went down there. It ended up being, you know, Jim Christiansen. And uh, Do we know what happened to him? Well, that's, that's where the story gets whitewashed, I guess, um, because he was making noise about having to pick up Olympic officials and get them prostitutes. So we have, we have this Olympic <laughs> official. He's all excited about his job. He's picking up these dignitary, dignitaries, and, you know, he's got to get them prostitutes. So he starts making a little bit noise about that. And I don't know what else he was doing, what else he had seen. But, um, I mean, there was a lot of people involved. And in you had the governor, Governor Levitt, Orrin Hatch, uh, uh, there are so many people that were involved in making this successful. I, I know things came out down the road that, like, Orrin Hatch, who was, uh, you know, U.S. senator, uh, probably the longest sitting on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, he just retired, I yeah, believe, Yeah, he just right? retired, yeah. and uh, Pierre Delecto took over his position, or Mitt Romney. I guess it came out that he had given scholarships to uh, kids of dignitaries that were in the Olympic Committee. We don't exactly know what Governor Levitt was doing, but we know that they're all kind of working together to get the Olympics here because it benefited Utah. It also benefited the Mormon Church. It, it put the spotlight on the Mormon Church. So everybody was involved. And so when Christiansen shows up dead after making these allegations, the whole case was whitewashed the whole case was whitewashed and it's really hard to believe that this homicide division from salt lake city just came in as a suburban it's a it's a official vehicle dead guy in the back probably been there for four days and they just washed the whole case 
the interesting thing, and if you understand police procedures, you know, they would process the vehicle, they do a bunch of things. But what happened was they came up with, um, I guess, a witness that they say that said that they'd shut up heroin with this guy, like how many, I don't know how many times, but a bunch of times over a three-day period, uh, and he died of a drug overdose, and obviously they stuffed his body in the back of the car and parked it on the street, hoping somebody would find it. It's a typical situation with, if you're in that drug scene, Mm -hmm. your friends will let you die, dump your body on the side of the street so they don't get implicated in, you know, using drugs, when, you know, at the time, as a police officer, you're not concerned about who's using. It's like, you just need to save a life. But that's the story they came up with. And what was interesting about that story is all the family members, Christiansen's family members like that is not true. Married guy, kids, LDS, maybe he had some drug problems in his past, but they're like, no way, he was not doing drugs. He loved his job. They believed it was directly related to what he knew. And um, so basically they came in, they had this witness that said they'd shut up multiple times over a you know, three, four day weekend. He died of an overdose. But the ME report, from what I understand, showed he died of a massive overdose of heroin. One, one needle mark was found on his body. So that's inconsistent with the witness testimony. And then when they found the body, uh, no spoon, no cooking implements, no you know, tie for, for your arm, no needle. I've found, personally, I've found people overdosed on heroin. The needle's still in their arm. All that stuff is there. Right. Uh, this guy had none of that. He did have a briefcase, I understand, that was booked into evidence that somehow has mysteriously disappeared. <sighs> but what is even more concerning is um, the fact that they closed the case virtually on the scene as a drug overdose, and they didn't process the vehicle. So that would, that would be a normal standard thing. It's like process, the, even if, even if, he died of an overdose, and the guy stuffed his body in the back and parked the street there, uh, parked the car on the street. It's tampering with with the body evidence, all of those things. So you can't, you just can't take a corpse and move it somewhere and, and not be held accountable for it. So, so d- even in sorry, even in um, suicide, everything the scene gets processed first. Absolutely, this is this is completely out of the out of the ordinary. Absolutely, right? okay. And this this will you'll it'll make sense as we get down the road when you understand the players okay. were the same in different incidences. So they closed this case as a drug overdose, no investigation, no processing of the vehicle, and it's it's a dead issue. So timeline wise, this is September of '98, and um, the Olympic scandal had not broken, but we did have it. So. Fast forward to around January of 99, there is a meeting. And I believe it's at the Cedars of Lebanon. It's a Lebanese restaurant downtown. Uh, Mayor Didi Cordini, uh, I guess, went to the University of Beirut as a, as a young woman. And so she had an affinity with the Middle Eastern culture, Lebanese. So it was one of those places that she would frequent. So what I understand is there was a meeting, and in this meeting, there was Didi Cordini, there was Welsh and Johnson, who were Olympic Committee members in Salt Lake City. There was uh, the chiefs, most likely Ruben Ortega and the administrative assistant chiefs, and there was also Rod Decker from Channel 2. 
Oh, he's a he's an infamous newsman in Utah. Like been around forever. Been around forever. I actually right. I like Rod Decker, but he was there. And how I know this is I had a witness come forward a little down the road from uh, the incident that I'll get to. Came forward and actually provided a uh, deposition and testimony that was actually not opposed in federal court by Didi Cordini or the city. Um, and it was, but it was put under seal for whatever reason, right? Of course. <laughs> but I do have a copy of it. I do have a copy of the, of the testimony um, that was under seal. I, it has a stamp on it under seal. How do you get that? I, my it? attorneys got, oh, got it for me during okay. the course of um, litigation. But she said she was present, not in the meeting, but in an adjacent table. And she overheard a conversation and she described the contents of the conversation. And so what was happening was they were talking about um, they had got the Olympics. Mm -hmm. The world is now watching. So how is the world going to perceive Salt Lake City? And, of course, she was dealing with her Bonneville corruption scandal. Olympic scandal hadn't broke yet. And they were worried about Salt Lake City appearing to be a corrupt city. And you've got, the, you've got the pressure of the church and all of those others on the outside that they just can't allow this stuff to come out. They can't allow a murder or any of that stuff to come out. So I guess based on the testimony from this woman, um, and I did say it was accepted unopposed into federal court, uh, and the city did have an opportunity to object to it and deny it. They didn't. Didi Cordini didn't. The city didn't. It was just accepted. Um, and I, I don't believe Rod Decker ever denied it. But basically what it said was they were talking about the perception of the world, corruption, heavy-handed police. I think at that time in Salt Lake City, we'd had a couple of shootings. And so we're, we're talking about January or February when this meeting took place. And uh, Rod Decker is the one that, I guess, proffered the question with... Well, how do you think they're going to see us as heavy-handed, like LAPD or Gestapo or all of that? And Didi Cordini apparently said, we got it covered. The next officer involved in an incident, we're going to make an example of him, and we're going to put that to bed. And that does a couple of things. It, it makes the city look like they're in charge of their police, but also at the same time, oh, yeah, we, we do not, like, or we're not into corruption. We clean up our own. We don't hide stuff. So to the world, we're very transparent. So it was kind of a two-part um, outcome that they were looking for. So I guess that's what happened. Um, a, a short time after that, I got involved in a shooting. How, how long after this? Uh, March 26. So I, I would say within weeks of the meeting, oh. I, got in, I got into a shooting myself. And, um, you know, I was totally oblivious to a lot of this because I was, you know, working with the city. They were talking to me about, uh, you know, being the liaison with the mayor's office. It was interesting that after the mayor was not, had, had announced that she was not going to run again for re-election, Ruben Ortega, who is a transplant from Arizona, he was the chief there, the most hated police chief in the country, I think, Came to Salt Lake City. Ruben Ortega was? Yes. Okay. Came to Salt Lake City and was, was there. I had dealings with him. I didn't really have any issues with him. He didn't have any issues with me. But um, I remember 
executive assistant Roy Wasden called me, and he was a neighbor of mine, and he asked to have a meeting with me. So I went up to administration. This is right before my shooting. And uh, he basically said to me, hey, this is, this is what's happening. The mayor's out. Ruben wants to run for mayor, and um, I'm going to be the chief. And he goes, and I'm taking you with me. You're coming with me up through the administration. He goes, one day you'll be, you'll be the chief of Salt Lake City. Oh, wow. So they were grooming me, I guess, because yeah. of my friends. And uh, he's like, what can we do to get the police department to back the chief? Because he was pretty hated. And I, and I said, this is what you do. Stop punishing officers for doing their job. Give them attaboys. Write them merit, uh, letters of recommendation, merit. Honor them, rep, you know, recognize their good work. And I said, that will go a long way to making officers feel that the chief has their back and that they and the union would get behind the chief to be the mayor of Salt Lake City. And so Roy Wasden, you know, had aspirations to be the chief. And uh, that's what they asked me to do. Funny enough, weeks later, I start getting all these accommodations, you know. I, I think I got like three or four of them, like in a row from the chief directly for, you know, taking out armed robbery suspects without shooting them, big drug busts, just different things like that. Normally would, would and should be recognized just in general. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, I get a dump of these accommodations. Wow. And, you know, I start telling people, hey, you know, Ortega wants to run for mayor and Wasden wants to be chief and, you know, maybe we can get behind him. And uh, then all of a sudden, um, I get into an incident and I felt like they started to really critique me, criticize me a little bit. And I kind of was wondering what that was about, whether they were just trying to make sure that I was on side, uh, making me concerned a little bit for my career. What was the incident? Can we talk about that, or is that? Ah, uh, no, I, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to get distracted with with that. Okay. It, it's uh, it was a drug arrest and okay. and some other things that. So I, nothing too exciting. Nothing right. too exciting, okay. but it just the way they handled it, um, the response I got from it. I mean, I, I can say this that I was told to lie in a, in a report. And not only by the police, but by the district attorney on the on the on the the way in which evidence was obtained in a drug bust that I did, and I refused to change nice my job. report. I actually stated in my report the exact circumstances that there was a lawful arrest up to a point, right. and then there was an unlawful illegal search subsequent to the arrest. And so. Rather than wait for a warrant, they went in and they found all this extra stuff. And so I documented it in my report. Can I just say, that takes some stones right there. When these powerful dudes are telling you to lie and you stand up to them, that takes some, yeah, that so takes some I, cojones. Putting it in my report is what frustrated them. And I, I, right. I'm like, look, make your case up to this point. All the stuff that was seized illegally, I didn't charge the guy for. I simply booked it into evidence as, as uh, seized contraband, mm -hmm. and I stated in the report that the arrest was done based on the first portion. Second portion was a uh, illegal search without a warrant that recovered a, uh, an amount of drugs, mm -hmm. not charged, not added to the case. And I'm like, can't you just go make your case? Wouldn't right. that be better for you to make your case and say, well, we're only charging him for this, but afterwards this illegal part happened? Well, I was told straight up to lie. 
and when I wouldn't, um, I had a couple of detectives get mad at me and just say, well, you're going to do your own cases from now on. We will not screen your cases. We will not t touch your cases. You'll have to take them to the DA yourself. So I, I kind of felt like I was on my own. So and what does that what does that mean? So usually you take it to them for help on cases, and they're saying they're not... They're not going to touch them. Like they're not going to back you up, no. nothing. No. Whoa. So I could go out. I could go out and make a good arrest... I could, I could arrest a murderer, and they're not going to accept my case. They're oh like, you're going to have to take your case yourself. So I knew at that oh. point that I was now kind of in the crosshairs. Mm -hmm. And the other interesting things that were happening, this is all very close within like a couple of months, you know, of, of the Christiansen case. Okay. So we had, a, we had a shooting that took place in the Triad building, the KSL building downtown. Downtown and Salt Lake. Some people might remember that, but we had a like a crazed shooter go in. And, I don't remember uh, that. Yeah, so she went in in uh, early '99. I was probably February, and um, started shooting up the place. And her objective was to get up to the fourth or fifth floor where the KSL uh, broadcast was taking place. And I don't know what her. She was obviously, you know had mental problems, but she had got into the building, fired a round or two on the main floor, security called the police, and I think within a minute and a half, a highway patrolman showed up at the building and then waiting for backup to come, several Salt Lake City police officers who were SWAT officers arrived and they were wanting to go in to the building. But the order came down from administration, from Ruben Ortega, to not enter the building, to wait for him. This is, un this is unheard of. Because you're supposed to go in, You right? go in, yeah. Okay. And so we know today from the active shooter scenario that your objective is to enter immediately and locate the shooter and put a stop to the shooting. So this was something that has never happened before in the city, my experience. I, I talked to um, you know police officers all around the country, uh, those that are specialized in this, this rapid deployment stuff with active shooters. It's unheard of. But the chief tells him not to go in, to wait for him to get there. I don't know what he's going to do when he gets there. There's an active shooter in the building. So she ends up moving her way up, up the floors. Uh, a couple more officers roll up. They start suiting up in their gear. They're about to make entry, I think, four minutes in. Uh, could have taken her out. The chief once again tells him not to do anything till he gets there. I think it ends up being 9, 10, 11 minutes or something like that. She ends up getting up to the floor. Uh, AT&T's on the floor. There was a woman named Ann Slater that was shot and killed. And shortly after that, the officers defied the order, entered the building against orders, and actually helped the, the people on the floor who had actually taken her down after she had shot Ann Slater. They actually arrested the woman uh, helping the civilians that were up there. And um, I, I think it was like nine, uh, between nine and 11 minutes in, the officers could have done their job, could have taken care of the situation. That's Ann an Slater eternity. didn't need to die. Yeah. And what this was all about was um, Ruben Ortega wants to be mayor, so he's got to have a platform. He's got to create a platform. So, so he was he wanted he wanted all the glory from yes. stopping. Oh my! So this is how <laughs> politics works. So now they have this woman in custody. Um, I heard from my friends, the whole crime scene was out of control. The chiefs were walking people just randomly through the crime scene. In fact, uh, uh, a Sergeant Gardner, I believe had to get a chair and sit it and sit in the chair over the gun that was on the floor to stop people like from kicking it. That's how out of control the crime scene was. Oh this was all orchestrated uh, 
public relations platform for Ortega to run for mayor. And then he gets his crew outside, all the administration, and they form a half circle in front of the building where the media is all set up to take statements. And um, the officers were going to take the suspect out the back, which is what you would normally do. And they tried, I think, two or three times to do it. And then they were ordered that they had to bring him out the front, right in front of the press. So that Ruben Ortega was the hero of the day, even though they had, he had nothing to do with it. Um, and he actually caused created more people. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so that, um, that was that situation. And just in a footnote, the officers that went in against orders were reprimanded and disciplined. They for doing were? It. Yes, absolutely. So anyway, it turns out that Ann Slater oh, was married to a guy named Chris Slater, who was the head of the Utah Film Commission. Oh, okay. And he was a friend of mine. This is the lady that got This killed. is the lady got murdered, yes. Okay. So Chris was a friend of mine. And at the time, I was the, uh, I was the police coordinator for Salt Lake City Police in the movie. So I worked mm -hmm. with all the film industry people. And I started telling people about what happened and how this was Ruben Ortega's fault. It should never have happened. Awesome. He stopped them from doing their job. And so all of these things are happening at the same time. So then I'm working a movie, and it was, uh, it was The Crow Salvation, so it was a major feature movie. I was the police coordinator, tech advisor on that. I wasn't officially on duty, although I was in uniform in a police car. So basically what happened that night was uh, they were reporting that stuff was being stolen from their set down at the Masonic Lodge downtown, and they couldn't get officers to respond. So I left the movie set, raced on over there, secured the location, got officers to get there, and then I headed back to... Um, I headed back to the set. On the way back to the set, I got some dudes racing at 80, 90 miles an hour on 7th each, which is a 40-mile-an-hour zone. So I decide I'm going to, you know, stop and see what's up. So I ended up making a traffic stop. One thing led to another. I got in a shooting incident. and um, Can you explain that a little more? Okay, so you pull them over, and then walk me through what happens after that. So uh, I... I light them up, and one vehicle takes off to heads west, and the other one stays on 7th East heading south. So now I, I, I was just going to, like, give them a, hey, what's up? You know, slow down, right. check out if they're drunk or something. But uh, this kid runs a red light right there when I pull up on him. So I, I head on after him, and then uh, he pulls over just a few blocks up the road. And then I pull in behind him, and then he starts, like, creeping forward. So I'm thinking, this, this guy's looking for a way to run. But there was road construction, so he couldn't really head west. So I kind of moved up alongside him, kind of motioning for him to pull over. And he just, he was waving his arms around and looking at me, like trying to think of a way to get away, I think. Yeah. So I just kind of pinched him in with my car so he couldn't really go anywhere. And then I got out of my vehicle. I walked around to him. Uh, and he's looking back at me as I'm standing at the door. And I'm knocking on the door. And I'm like, open the door, open the door. I want you to get out of the car. And uh, his arms, hands go down into the car. And I can't see in there. Yeah. So I don't know what he's doing. It could be reaching for a gun. It's happened to me three or four times. So I draw my gun. And I'm standing back, and I'm ordering him to just get out of the vehicle. Well, unknown to me, he's actually reaching for the, for the gear stick. He's in a manual shift, and he's trying to get it into reverse. But at this time, I open the door, and I'm like, get out of the car. And I don't think I was that friendly in my communications either. <laughs> right. um, 
Anyway, at that point, when I told him to get out of the car, I'm standing behind the open door. He flies backwards. So now I get hit by the door. So he pops it in reverse. Pops it in reverse, accelerates. The wheels were spinning, so he was going fast. And it hit me and knocked me down. Um, I grabbed the top of the door to stop myself from going under, but my, my foot was right at the front wheel, so just like inches away. And I'm thinking if I let go, I'm just going to get run over. Yeah. And then he started, like, swerving the car back and forth as he's accelerating backwards. Trying to shake you? So I was something? trying to shake me off. Okay. And um, I don't know how it happened, but at some point, my le- one of my legs bounced on the road, and uh, my right leg got on the door sill. And I'm still holding the, the door. Mm. And all of a sudden, I'm now straddling the door. You know, my stomach's over the door. Mm-hmm. I'm holding the door with one arm, and my stomach's over the door. And oh I, got, I got my hand on the roof. With a gun in it. And this becomes something like the Matrix. But he's now going backwards, but he's swerving back and forth, right to left. And so at one point, uh, as, I, as he turns to the right, my whole body goes on the roof. So now I'm... So it flips you up, It basically. flips me up. So oh, I'm holding yeah. the door with my left hand. My right hand's on the roof. <laughs> and now my body, my torso's on the roof. I bent the antenna, the radio antenna, across the roof. Now I'm holding on the roof. And he's still going. Well, he's only doing, I mean, 25 miles an hour is pretty scary going backwards. Oh, and yeah. And that's, that's what he was doing about Anything's that. Anything's scary yeah. when you're hanging out to a car. So I'm hanging on, and he's swinging the car back and forward. And um, eventually he swung it back to the left, and my body came off the roof. And my arm with the gun in it kind of dragged across the roof. You can tell because there was drag marks. Oh, my. But there was also uh, my polyester shirt. I guess the friction and force of my shirt being, my arm being on the roof, it actually burned into the paint. Are you serious? Yeah, so that, these were the interesting things that came out about the, about the case. It burned into the paint? Yeah, you could see the pattern mark. So, oh, that's weird. I've never heard of that. <laughs> Holy crap. So then I, I fall back on the door, but as I'm coming back on the door, my arm comes off and I start shooting. As soon as my arm is free of the roof, I start shooting into the car. I fired a couple of rounds immediately down. One hit the clutch pedal, one got him in the foot, and then he swung out to the left again, and I fell backwards, and then he swung to the right, and my gun and my torso went through the back window, so we actually broke the window out. Oh, my God. And I'm now, I'm now kind of half in the back window, still hanging onto the door, I've got my right leg on the door sill. It's all crazy. As I'm coming out of the out of the window on his left swing, I fire around, point center to the back of his head, right at the headrest, and the I guess the headrest was enough, it was dense enough that it slowed the bullet down and it never hit him. So it kind of fell between the seat cover. Really? And um, and then as I fall out on the door. Now I've just got one free arm. I'm falling backwards. I fired a couple of rounds, and I hit him like in the side of the head or the side of the face, and and uh, the bullet came out his nose. What? And yes, you, yes, perfect. Uh, it came yeah, out of his nose. Came out of his nose. And uh, and then at that point he slammed his foot on the brakes. So now he's decelerating, and his vehicles, and we know that based on like rear skid marks that we, you can measure the distance and skidding and all that right. kind of stuff. Okay. So now he hits the brakes, and I'm leaving the vehicle, flying through the air backwards. 
And so when he breaks it, you fly. I off. fly. So well, now I'm okay. leaving the vehicle at 25 miles an hour, but he's oh. slowing down. So I'm going to beat the vehicle to wherever it is <laughs> we're going. Right. So as I'm, how as, far do you fly? Do you think? Uh, I I could have been 20 feet. 20 feet. It was it was a distance because Jeez. I uh, I was just shooting. Right. I just kept shooting. I was totally oblivious to where my body was relative to the road, the car. I had tunnel vision. I had all the all the psychological um, impacts of that. I had tunnel vision. I had slow motion. I, my auditory shut down. I couldn't hear anything. I was so focused on what was happening, and I had I had my my both hands on the gun as I'm flying backwards through the air. I didn't put my hands or arms down to stop myself hitting the ground. I'm just shooting right at his back. Um, I fired a number of rounds. Right, went through the door and uh, into his back seat. So they're all pretty much at his back. Mm -hmm. And then finally I hit the ground and the car actually came back on me that I had to roll to the left to not be run over. And I fired the last round while lying on my back. I think it hit probably 16 inches from the ground was the actual strike point and was going in an upward direction. To kind of give you an idea of how low to the ground I was. You're right, yeah. And, oh, my um, gosh. So now I'm on the ground. His vehicle has stopped. And I'm just trying to get conscious of really what's just happened. And I think, you know, maybe he's, he's dead. I don't know. Because um, I had no way of knowing if any of the bullets actually hit him. Right. But uh, I'm just laying there and I start getting up. I'm staggering to my feet, trying to get some focus on it. Um, I come up with my gun, and then all of a sudden I just hear the car revving and squealing, and then all of a sudden he takes off. What are you thinking at that point? Like, is this the Terminator? Yeah, <laughs> I, I had no idea. Well, I, I just really didn't know if I had hit him. I just knew that I was shooting at him. In that direction. In that direction. And uh, I was relatively close, because I, I think when they did all the ballistics, I was within 12 to 18 inches of the vehicle at all times when the shots were fired. Oh, wow. So anyway, he, he just takes off. And now I'm just out of wind, and I'm done. I'm like, I am not chasing this guy. <laughs> he is on, he's gone. So I get on the radio. I tell him I just got in a shooting, uh, gave him suspect description, gave him a couple of digits of his plate, uh, direction of travel. And here's where it gets interesting. So Here's where it gets interesting. <laughs> so now I'm, I, I get a couple of officers come up. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out part two to hear the thrilling conclusion.